0: Good morning, y'all. For those of you that I have not gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Andrew Archer. I'm the student ministry director here at The Ridge. I was thinking about this week and thinking about uh, back when I was in high school and when I got my driver's license. And there were uh, some things that you learn, right? Before you get your license, you learn a few things. Well, most of those things, hopefully, you can kind of remember them and put them into practice, but sometimes we hear things even a couple times, and uh, even if our teacher is really great, And uh, we need some real life experience, right? To really learn those things, to solidify them. And uh, I think embarrassingly for me, uh, the thing that I had to really learn by doing was to open my garage door before starting my car. And uh, thankfully I never got sick, but The point still remains is that that was something that just wasn't on my mind. I would get in the car, I'd turn it right on, be looking for music or whatever, and I can distinctly remember at least two times when my dad, like, hears the car turn on but not the garage door, and he bursts through the door and, like, you know, smacks the thing so that way the door starts to open and I don't get sick, and, you know, kind of giving me the business a little bit, which I deserved. Um, But here's the thing is that, you know, that carbon monoxide that gets released when your car is on, and that happens all the time, even when you're outside, but it's not a big deal if you're outside uh, when carbon monoxide's being released because it just fills all of the space. But if you're inside and that's happening, there's not a lot of space and it fills up the whole space. And what happens is that normally when you're breathing in good, clean air, you breathe in oxygen, comes into your lungs, and then your heart pumps some blood into your lungs, and in your blood you have iron atoms and those iron atoms kind of pick up the oxygen atoms and they kind of connect. And then the iron is kind of like Uber and it takes the oxygen wherever it needs to go in your body to give them, give the rest of your body the oxygen it needs. And it takes it throughout and then it drops it off wherever it needs, comes back and gets more. Well, when you breathe in carbon monoxide, the carbon monoxide sticks to the iron atoms and it gets like really stuck and it's hard to get off. And so if you breathe in enough carbon monoxide, it'll take up all the space for oxygen, and your blood won't be able to pick up the oxygen to take it to the rest of your body, so you begin to suffocate. The crazy thing about carbon monoxide poisoning is that that you don't even know it's happening. You can't realize it. It's a colorless, tasteless, odorless gas, and everything seems fine. I mean, your lungs are working properly. Air is going in and out of your body. But in reality, you're suffocating. While you're getting something that appears to be giving you life, you aren't getting the one thing that you need to live, oxygen. You're breathing to death. Today we're continuing our series timeline and we're gonna be zooming in on the life of Elijah the prophet. Uh, His life was remarkable, one of the most fascinating people that you can study in all of scripture. But before we hop into his life, I wanna take a look of how we got from David last week, who Pastor Josh talked about, King David, how we get from him to Elijah. It kinda helps set the table so we can understand better what's going on with Elijah and the Israelites and all of them. So David passes away, and his son Solomon takes over as king. And things are going really, really well. He builds a temple, Israel is kinda doing really well as a kingdom, everything is going great. But as he gets older, he begins to turn away from the Lord. He begins to turn to other gods, to false gods, and Israel follows suit. And so God, out of love for his people and a desire to see them turn back to him, he decides to discipline them. And the way in which he does that is by deciding to divide their kingdom, right? So they were kinda united and everything was going well, so he said, I'm gonna divide their kingdom and hopefully they'll realize they need to come back to me. And so what happens, is that Jer- uh, Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, when Solomon passes away, he takes over as king. But 10 out of the 12 tribes in Israel are like, nah, we don't want that. We want this guy, Jeroboam, who was the, ki- who was the servant of Solomon. We want him to be king. So now the house is, becomes divided, and you have a northern kingdom of Israel ruled by Jeroboam, who's not of the line of David, and then you have a southern kingdom that's two out of the 10 tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and they're in the kingdom of Judah, ruled by Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. Things only continue in a downward spiral with Jeroboam. See, he makes false gods, he makes idols, and he turns away from the true and living God, and he does what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and every king after him does the same. And then we get to Ahab. Ahab is the king while Elijah is active as prophet. And I want to turn to 1 Kings 16 and look at uh, the description we have here of Ahab. Starting in verse 29. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king, Asa. So Asa was the king in Judah, the southern kingdom. Ahab becomes the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Think about that, that's kind of crazy. Like we have about 100 years from Solomon to Ahab, just under 100 years, and every single king is doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and somehow Ahab is able to top them all and be worse. It's pretty hard to do. Well, let's read on about Ahab. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bound into worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asheropol, an Asheropol. Ahab did more to anger the Lord, God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So again, we have that same phrase, the same idea, he's worse than all the kings before him. And so he follows in Solomon's footsteps by marrying someone who does not follow the God of Israel. And that woman, is, Jezebel, is really, really devout to Baal and Asherah, these other gods and the goddess, and leads him and leads the people of Israel astray. They start to build altars and temples to these gods. They start to turn away from Israel. And the craziest thing we learned in a couple of chapters, in chapter 18, that Jezebel and Ahab were also trying to kill, to wipe out all of the prophets, all of the people who still followed God. They didn't successfully do it, but they were trying to, and they wiped out many. This is where Elijah comes in. Elijah was a prophet, right? A prophet is a messenger sent from God, someone sent to the people to get their attention, to get them to turn back to God, to point to something God is doing. And uh, before we continue, I wanna take a quick sidebar here because in our entire series timeline, as we've been looking at all these Old Testament stories, we've seen one common thread, and that's that they're all telling one unified story that's pointing forward to Jesus. It's pointing forward to Jesus, and Elijah's life is no different. See, Elijah, being the prophet that he was, having that call on his life, pointing people to come back to the Lord, pointing forward to what God is doing, he should remind us of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist did the same thing. He was calling people to repent, to turn away from whatever they were chasing after back to the Lord and pointing toward Jesus, the greatest thing that God had ever done, was ever going to do. Send his one and only son to die for us so that we might have life and life with him forever. And so when we think of John the Baptist, or when we think of Elijah, we should think of John the Baptist. Other people did. There were people in John the Baptist's time who even asked, is is this guy Elijah reincarnated or is this Elijah come back? And I don't think that's the case, but it does say that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So when we read this story, when we think about Elijah and his life, let's think to John the Baptist and let's think to Jesus. Back to Elijah. He first comes on the scene in 1 Kings 17, and God tells him to go to Ahab and to tell him that there's going to be a drought until Elijah prays otherwise. That's kind of weird. Why, why? Let's ask the question, why? Why does God want to do this? Well, I think in the same way that God was disciplining Israel by dividing the kingdom, I think God was doing the same thing. He was trying to get Israel's attention by causing a drought. He wanted them to turn back to him as the one who could provide for everything they needed. And I think it's specific and important that it was a drought, because Baal, the God that they had turned to, He was a fertility God, but also the God of the storm, the God of thunder, of lightning, of rain. So I think God is kind of saying here like, hey, you've turned to who you think is in charge of the storm, of the rain, of what's gonna fall, but I'm gonna show you who's really in charge. And it's not gonna rain a drop until I say otherwise. So it's kind of really cool levels of what God is doing here and trying to get them to turn back to him. So Elijah flees, naturally, because they're trying to kill him. Uh, They're trying to kill the prophets of the Lord. And God provides for him. God sends him to this river and he says, hey, go settle at this river, I'll provide for all your needs. And Elijah trusts in God and he obeys him. And he goes there and he's able to drink that fresh water and God sends ravens to bring him food each morning and each evening. And God provides miraculously for him. But eventually, the river runs dry because they're in the middle of a drought. And so in in that time, God says, hey, go to this foreign country, go meet this widow, and she'll take care of you. And Elijah, for some crazy reason, says, yes. I mean, that sounds like a kind of nutty plan, but he trusts God, he obeys him, and he goes. And he goes and he finds this widow and her son, and he stays with the widow. But the widow only has a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour, not enough to last them maybe more than a day. And she's like, we can't help you. And he's like, no, 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 don't worry, God is gonna provide. That oil, that flour is not gonna run out until this drought is over. And it doesn't. Elijah trusts, he obeys, and God continues to provide for him and the uh, widow and her son. And then tragedy strikes. The widow's son passes away. But Elijah and the widow turn to the Lord. They pray, and through God's power, working through Elijah, the boy is raised back to life. In this crazy time, about three years has passed, Elijah has been leaning into trusting and turning to God even when the circumstances seemed awful. I think one of the things that we can learn from this first part of his story is that God wants to provide for you. He wants to provide for us. This chapter really reminded me of a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Tim was sharing about Abraham and Isaac and his takeaway that day was trust and obey and God will make a way. Trust and obey, and God will make a way. I see Elijah doing that here, and God providing when he's in his will. So three years have gone by, right? Then God says, Elijah, go back to Ahab, tell him this drought's gonna end soon. And we pick the story back up in 1 Kings 18, verse 17. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? Elijah replied, I've not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and the 450, 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sees Elijah and he's like, hey, you're the one that's causing it to be a drought. You're the one that's ruining Israel. Why, what, what's the deal here? And Elijah says, no, no, no. This is because of you. This is because you've turned from God and he's trying to get your attention. He wants to provide for you, but you will not turn to him. So he says, all right, get all the people, get all the prophets, meet me at Mount Carmel. Verse 20, so Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered all the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal follow him, But the people didn't answer him a word. See, what Israel had been doing the entire time, they had been turning to God when they needed him and then things would be going well and then they would turn away from God to other gods and then things would start going poorly and they would realize their need for God and turn back to God. And Elijah's saying, what are you doing? This is insanity, just if God is God, then stick with him, pick him. But if not, then follow Baal, follow the other gods. But pick one, make up your mind. He's kind of presenting this dichotomy between God and Baal. He goes on to say in verse, um, verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They're to choose one bull for themselves, to cut it in pieces and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I'll prepare the other bull and I'll place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call in the name of your God and I'll call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers with fire. He is God. All the people answered, that's fine. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call in the name of your God, but don't light the fire. Elijah is setting up this showdown. And if you've read this story, it's often referred to as the showdown with the prophets of Baal. He's setting up this showdown, and and the funny kind of thing about it is he's giving them home court advantage in a sense, right? Remember, their god Baal is the god of storms, the god of thunder, of lightning. So if you're trying to call on your god to bring fire down from heaven, it's going to be in the form of lightning, right? And so he's saying, hey, we're gonna, me and my god are gonna kind of play you in your game on your field, and we're gonna show you up. And not only that, he says, look, there's only one of me, but there's 450 of you but uh, you guys can have first choice of the bull. You can do it first, you can spend all morning, all afternoon, all evening, and I'll go second. So he's kind of making there be no excuse, no reason that Baal shouldn't win if he's the true God. They're playing his game by his rules, and in a sense, God is stepping into his home court. Of course we know that's not true. God is the one true God here. But this is what Elijah's setting up. In verse 26, So they took the bowl that he gave them. They prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over, maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and he'll wake up. They shouted loudly and they cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Silence is uncomfortable sometimes. Imagine. Imagine being the prophets of Baal. Your God, supposedly the God of the storm, the God of the rain, thunder, lightning, you've been praying to him for years. Why? Because there's a drought. There's been a drought for three years and their God has not come through, has not done anything. Imagine the frustration they probably feel. Imagine some of the difficulty they feel. I think that's why this scene gets quite as chaotic as it does because they're frustrated. I think they're at their wits end at this showdown with the God of Israel And Elijah comes in and he's kind of saying like, hey, your God's not really a God. That's why he might be sleeping. You know, he's kind of mocking him in that sense. But imagine, no answer. And then they start shouting. And they're dancing and they're making fools of themselves. And then they start harming themselves trying to get an answer from something that never could have answered them. They're shouting at nothing. Then Elijah in verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people came near him. Then, they, then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next he arranged the wood Cut up the bowl and placed it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. Then he said a second time, and they did it a second time. Then he said a third time, and he did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. Again, right, Elijah wants there to be no mistakes. He wants to kind of like pull a Bill Stewart, leave no doubt tonight. Right? He said, Man, you got the God that we're in your home field. We're playing your game by your rules. You guys get to go first. Also, we're trying to light this thing on fire. I'm gonna dump water all over it. There's gonna be a trench. There's gonna be no way that I could light this on fire or pull a trick. He wanted people to have no doubt, no ability to fight back or push back against the fact that when this thing sets on fire, it is the God of Israel. He wants them to know that and to know him and turn back to him. So let's see what happens. In verse 36, at the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, and that your word I have done these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people will know you, the Lord, our God, and you've turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I I don't know what other response you could have after that. It's kind of remarkable. These prophets spend all day, really probably all three years, shouting, giving their everything, to Baal and get no response. No one pays attention. Yet when, Israel turn, when Elijah turns to the Lord, fire comes down, it consumes, and God kind of steps up to prove that Baal is a false god that they've been following and that he is the one true God. And I think what we, be able, what we begin to see here is that as we kind of saw earlier, God provides for our needs, but he also hears us. He also listens to us. Our words don't bounce off the ceiling. They go up They go up to God and someone hears us unlike these prophets of Baal. And I think the, the kind of easy thing to see in this story is that and it is the majesty of God. I mean how incredible that he's able to do that and he's able to do what he's been able to do to sustain Elijah for these three years. God proved that he was the one true God and not Baal. However, as I've been studying this and, and kinda of reading through it and, and praying through this this past couple of weeks, I've been thinking about a question. It, it kind of occurred to me that I think there's a people group in this story that, that we're a lot alike sometimes. I think that we're a lot alike the prophets of Baal. That's kind of weird. I mean, like they were like ancient people group that like did crazy, terrible, harmful things and they're like worshiping these false gods. Like, I don't do that. And you pro- probably don't, hopefully you don't, but it's not really about kind of how they were doing it, it's about what they were doing. And what did the prophets of Baal do? They put their trust in something that could not provide for what they needed. They put their trust in something other than the Lord, the only one who can provide what we need. I mean, how often in our lives do we spend time shouting, dancing, making a fool of ourselves, harming ourselves, shouting at something that cannot give us what we need. Not shouting at the Lord, looking for life elsewhere, like these prophets did. I think of a lot of examples of of ways in which we do this. I think that we do this, we shout at, things like relationships. We shout in our relationships with with just friendships, romantic relationships, with our family, with with anybody, we're just looking for affirmation. And we're just looking for love, and we're, we're putting a kind of burden on other people to give us something that they never could. And if we continue to shout at that, like it's the one thing that can give us what we need, it's only gonna fail us. We're gonna have no answer. Our relationships are always gonna end up broken in some way. Other people cannot fill that cup in the same way that God can. I think another thing that we often shout at is uh, social media. I like think we hop on Facebook, we hop on Instagram, we hop on TikTok and, and we are just screaming for someone to tell us that they like us. We're screaming for someone to tell me that I'm cool, that I'm good looking, that I'm funny, that I'm worth watching or worth listening to. We just scream all day long on social media and we just put our best foot forward and we hide all the ugly stuff and then we see everyone else's best foot and then we feel terrible about ourselves because we know that's not what life is really like and that's not what our life is really like and we just shout and we shout and we shout and no one answers, no one pays attention, it never satisfies. I think sometimes we shout at money I think we think, man, if, if I could just have enough money, if I could have enough money in the bank account, in the 401K, in the stocks, then we'll be good. How much, how much money is enough? Jeff Bezos has a lot of money. Bill Gates has a lot of money. Those guys just seem to want more and more and more of it. They've got way more money than all of us do combined. And they still need more. Can't ever have enough money. We'll never have enough to feel the eternal security that we desire by knowing that we are gonna be with God in relationship with him forever. That's the security we need and that's what we search for, I think, when we're looking in money. I think sometimes we look and we shout for pleasure and we just want things to be as pleasurable, as entertaining, as fun, kinda as good as we want and we're shouting at pleasure to give us everything we need, but it's all temporary. It's all temporary. It lasts for a minute and then it's gone. I think of even like um, you know maybe using a substance, maybe drinking, maybe doing certain drugs, maybe you're doing that to find relief from pain, from emptiness, from brokenness, and it works for a minute, feels good for a minute. You come back down, it's a whole lot worse. Feel a whole lot worse when that's over and you gotta go back to it and do it again. You gotta go back to it and do it harder. I think sometimes we look in our careers. Man, if I just get that next promotion, it kinda is tied with money, but I think one of the things in our career that happens is like, man, I want people to see me. I want people to recognize me, my achievements, how hard I work. We want people to affirm that we are valuable, when the only person who can really affirm how valuable we truly are is God, and he has done that by sending his son to say that you are literally to die for. I think that we can look in all kinds of other places. We can look in leaders, we can look in celebrities, we can look in politicians and politics. We can look in all kinds of places. We can shout our whole lives, but unless we're shouting to the Lord, we are shouting at nothing, and we are gonna end up like the prophets of Baal. You know, these things, they're all a lot like carbon monoxide. You're often getting something that appears to be life-giving, but you aren't. You're not getting the one thing that you need to live, that's God. You're breathing to death when you are shouting after these things. Can we be honest with each other for a second? I mean, does what you're shouting after, does it actually listen to you? Does it answer you back? Does it give you the thing you're looking for? If I'm being honest, it doesn't. I've shouted at many things in my life and I still am tempted to do and still do sometimes today and it always lets me down it overpromises and underdelivers the reason they can do that is cuz the only thing that can give us what we need is god some of us we've been shouting our whole lives the takeaway today is simple stop shouting turn to god stop shouting at all these things that can never do anything but let you down that will never answer you, that will leave you by yourself, looking silly and hurt like the prophets of Baal. Turn to God, he is the one true God that can supply your every need, he is the one who hears your cry, he is the one who loves you, so much so that he showed it, he put it on display and proved it by sending his son to die for you. You will find rest and peace when you turn to the one who answers you. Whatever you're shouting at, it cannot give you what you're after. Only the Lord can do that, and you don't have to shout to get his attention. He's waiting for you to turn to him. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We thank you for the example of Elijah, for how you provided for him. God, for how you provide for us. We thank you, God, that when we speak, you hear us. You may not answer right away, but you hear us and we can know that and put our faith in that and trust in that unlike anything else. You have what we need. You are what we need. We thank you, God, and we ask that you can help us to see the things in our life that we are shouting at, that we are putting in your place, that we are turning from good things into God things, or we're taking bad things and turning them into God things, and and we just ask that you help us to see that in our own lives, God, to turn away from them and to turn to you. We thank you for all of these things, and it's in your son's holy name we pray, amen.